Talk to my friend Drew. And Allen. I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. Of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As diehard conservative to this guy for wisdom. You know, I have long lamented the fact that politics in America can't be more like like football, like sports. You know, everyone's got the same objective, victory for their teams. You can sit around, even if even if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of these rivalries, right? You know, it used to be the Cowboys and the former Redskins, you know, had these great rivalries. And you could really rib each other. It got really heated at times. But at the end of the day, you go home and that's it. You can have a healthy debate about teams. You can argue uh, with one another about the best sports team or or this and that. But the, the, the debate surrounding sports, it wasn't pernicious. It didn't have some, you know, friend-ending consequences if you're on the different side of the fence in terms of who you supported. And I lament that. I've long said You know, I wish that we could sit down with one another today and have a conversation, a healthy, robust conversation with one another about politics in America, policies in America. But, you know, alas, it's not that way anymore. And I mean, this is going to be a pretty great Super Bowl, I think. I mean, obviously now we've got the Bengals playing against the L.A. Rams. And, I, you know, I found myself, I was at a bar tonight. It was more of a restaurant. They happen to have the TV on. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, having grown up in Dallas. <laughs> you know, say what you will, think what you will about me now. Uh, believe me, it's it's painful to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. The Dallas Cowboys, by the way, are they're the Republican Party of NFL teams. Think about it. They 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 promise grandiosity every single season. Every year is one filled with hope. The Dallas Cowboys could go all the way this year, <laughs> be restored to their former glory. I don't know how much longer we can continue to call, even as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I don't know how much longer we can continue to call them America's team because that's a bygone era. That's a bygone era for sure. But um, but I was sitting there, you know, the TV's on, you've got your Bengals fans, you've got your, uh, well, you're not Bengals fans, sorry, that was the previous game against the uh against the uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. That was a great game by the way too. And and good for the Bengals. Joe Burrow, I mean he's impressed me, he impressed a lot of people. He seemed like a good kid and he's really turned things around for the Bengals. So that's kind of a an underdog story certainly. And a lot of people are going to be rooting for the Bengals. I don't have any skin in this game because I don't really I don't support the teams that are playing. I mean, they're, they're not my teams. I, I Like I said, I'm the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, that, that's my team. I grew up in Dallas. So, you know, that's punishment enough in itself. But you had the Rams uh, defeat, you know, unfortunately, I guess, um, uh, the San Francisco 49ers. And that was a great matchup. It was a great effort. And so now you've got the L.A. Rams going to the Super Bowl against the Bengals. Should be an interesting matchup. But, but you know, especially since I've come of age, right? I mean, as an adult in society, America's changed so much. You know, when you're looking at the football, uh, football is a sport. You know, everyone's got the same objective. You know, they're rooting for different teams, but the rules are the same. Everyone loves football. There's that agreement. And you just want to see the best competition possible because at the end of the day, may the best team win. There's no stakes. Nobody's harmed by, by victory or loss. And it used to be like that in America. It did. Yes, there's, there have always been distinctive policy differences between the Republicans and Democrats. But the, the, the viciousness today that is tearing families apart, friends apart, relationships apart based on being a Republican or Democrat, a conservative or, or liberal, they just can't coexist anymore. You can't have conversations anymore. I've told you before about how I've had friendships ruined because people who are Democrats that I've grown up with, lifelong friends, they can't be friends with, any, with me anymore because of my difference of political opinion. 
And that's just the state of the world. But I wish, I do wish that politics was more like like football, like sports. But it's not. It's not. Because what we want is not the same thing anymore. We're not rooting for victory for America. We're not playing by the same rules. And there are really, really high stakes, of course. But I just wanted to bring up football because there's something else I wanted to get into. And that's this Tom Brady story. Did you hear about this? Basically, is Tom Brady retiring or not? Now, there were a couple people. I think ESPN's uh, Adam Schefter is one of the guy's names and Jeff Darlington is the other one. Well, they're, I think, the ones who broke the story reporting that Tom Brady is retiring. Now, look, there's been speculation about Tom Brady's retirement since, I guess, the 2019 season even. And everyone was hanging on to every word that Tom Brady said. That was when he was playing his final season at the Patriots. And everyone's wondering, what's he going to do after this? I mean, he's, all, he's the oldest player in the league right now. And that's a big news story. He's arguably the greatest of all time. He's got seven, seven, hard to believe, seven Super Bowl rings, championships under his belt, on his fingers, if you will. And... Look, Tom Brady's a guy who's always held things close to his vest. He's pretty careful with what he says. He's deliberate. He plays it coy with the media. And he likes to be in control of the conversation and the narrative. And football comes first for him. All the other things are distractions. He dismisses them because winning is what matters to Tom Brady. So look, we had these two guys, Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington. I think it was those two who broke the story of his retirement. And then everyone was running with a story in the media. Tom Brady is retiring. And they got it wrong. They got it wrong. I'm going to get into something else here that goes beyond this because there's a reason I'm bringing up the Tom Brady story. It's not just to talk football, not just to change uh, topics here about politics because that's what I'm about here. By the way, I want to tell you something else before I get into this Tom Brady story and make my points. You're listening to a top 10% podcast in the world. That's right. The ratings are in, and in global podcasts, in the genre that this is in, which would be politics, for example, and entertainment here, we are in the top 10% of podcasts globally. Now, the goal is to continue to push that threshold and rise through the ranks further, but I just want you to know you're a part of something that's successful, and you've been with me since the beginning. And it's because of you that we're there. And I know a lot of people want to jump on a moving train, right? A moving train that's successful. That's what people are all about. And so that's what we've got here. So thank you. Spread the word. Share it with your friends. Let them know they too can be listening to one of the uh, fastest growing podcasts in the world. But this story struck me with Tom Brady. So this story breaks. And look, you've got... You know, Julian Edelman, for example, one of Tom Brady's uh, former teammates on the Patriots, he even sent out a farewell message responding to this, this story that was going around in the media. Thanks for the memories, babe. But then what happened? Julian Edelman walked it back later and said, can a guy thank another guy for the memories without everyone thinking he's retiring? Now, I don't know if it was... Uh, Tom Brady, who sent his former teammate a message saying, hey, buddy, walk this back. I haven't given the official word yet. But nonetheless, Julian Edelman got the word that maybe this wasn't true and walked it back. Tongue in cheek, of course, with a little bit of humor. But so we had these NFL insiders. It started with them reporting that Brady intended to retire. And then Brady's agent tweeted out that Brady called the Bucks GM Jason Light, to inform Jason that Brady has not made up his mind. Tom's dad, by the way, Tom Sr., he told a local station in San Francisco, I think it's called uh, Cron 4, that his son is not retiring. He hasn't made up his mind. Bruce Arians, the Tampa Bucks coach, 
told ESPN Brady hadn't decided anything. Now, for many people, this may just seem like, ah, what's the big deal? A mistake was made. They ran with this narrative. I think this is a very big deal. You know, I'm wondering, by the way, as I sit here and remember I asked, is Tom Brady retiring or not? We got conflicting information, right? We got the media saying, Tom Brady's retiring. And then you've got Tom Brady's dad and everyone else saying, actually, he hasn't made up his mind yet. It reminds me of what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, Is the uh, invasion imminent or not? If you ask the Biden regime, it's imminent. You know, Kiev's about to be sacked. If you ask the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, he'll say, uh, wait a minute, it's not so imminent. So maybe these, um, is this Russia disinformation? That's what the Democrats always say, right? The Russians are behind it. Did the Russians tell uh, Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington over there at ESPN that Tom Brady was retiring? Is this another distraction for the Biden regime? (laughs) I'm joking, of course, but it's similar. Who do you believe? Now, here's my comment about this. Now, look, I'm certain Tom Brady has probably mentioned and talked about his potential retirement. Look, they've been speculating about this for a long time, as we've said. And Brady's not a stupid guy. It's football. It's sports, right? So inevitably, at some point, you can't play the sport forever. And so it's never been a matter of if... But when? Of course Tom Brady's going to retire at some point. It was just a matter of when is he going to pull the trigger on that and leave football. I mean, he launched his uh, Tom Brady 12, TB12 company back in 2013. He was looking forward to the future because he knows, like any other athlete, that the days are numbered. And so he's been growing this empire year after year. I mean, he launched an apparel brand as well not too long ago. I forget what it's called, but it's the apparel brand. TB12 is kind of the nutrition. He's got a few gyms uh, and wellness centers. I mean, he's got one in Tampa Bay, Boston. I think there's a third. But he's planning to open them in Houston and Chicago and London, Miami, San Francisco, Toronto, and Los Angeles. So he's been planning this empire uh, to, um, to take care of, to build after his retirement. He's not a deadbeat. He's going to continue to be involved and do things. That's the kind of guy this he is. He's a competitive guy. And so I think that it's entirely possible that Tom Brady plans to retire. Totally, totally possible. And while he you know holds things close to the close to his vest, he close, you know, he hides his cards. You know, the guy's human. He might make a comment here, a comment there, and maybe they got the uh, their information from, from someone who said, well, I heard Tom Brady's thinking about retiring this year. Or maybe somebody else betrayed Tom Brady and put it out there. And that is an absolute betrayal. And what I think about this is that, you know, we live in a culture of disrespect, absolute disrespect a selfish culture without values without respect and without honor without any code Tom Brady has earned the right to announce his own retirement he's earned it he is arguably the greatest of all time and in the past no one's run a story that said Tom Brady is certainly retiring it's been pure speculation Will Tom Brady retire after the 2019 season? Will he retire? But this was different. This was different. Now, this is one of the biggest sports stories out there, of course. Tom Brady retiring from the sport of football. And, you know, for Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington, and then these uh, other NFL insiders and, and media outlets running with this story... Think about this. They did not corroborate it. They had an unnamed source, kind of like CNN had an unnamed source, right, when it came to the Zelensky-Biden phone call recently. And they ran the story. I mean, think about this. You had the GM. You had the head coach, Bruce Arians. You had Tom Brady's father. You had Tom Brady's agent all disputing this claim. How hard was it for Schefter or Darlington to pick up a phone, send an email, and check in with Tom Brady's agent, for example, and say, hey, 
Rumors are out there Tom Brady's retiring. Do you want to comment? But apparently they didn't corroborate the story, just like like the uh, you know Trump-Russia collusion, uncorroborated. Doesn't matter. You know why? Because it served the narrative. In this case, of course, with a Tom Brady retirement, it's not as pernicious as the Trump hit job. It doesn't have these wide-scale ramifications. It's not threatening democracy. It's not undermining a president. It's not a coup in terms of relating to an entire country and our political system crumbling beneath us under these corrupt politicians. But it is notable that these people wanted to tell this narrative, wanted to run the story, wanted to break it, wanted to get their names in the headlines so badly that they didn't even bother to corroborate the Tom Brady retirement story before they ran it. Because the narrative was more important than the truth or the facts. And even if Tom Brady was planning to retire, what type of selfish individual doesn't think about the fact that maybe Tom Brady wants to retire on his own terms. Maybe he wants to be the one to announce it. Maybe he should be the one to go to the media or have the media and him work together to craft a statement, to craft a message of thankfulness for his career. Of course Tom Brady would want that, and he deserves it. But these people took that from him. And you know what I hope actually happens? I hope that Tom Brady gives these guys the... The, the double-barreled middle finger here and doesn't retire. I hope it doesn't happen. There's new speculation now that he's going to sign a one-day contract, you know, like they do sometimes to retire his jersey, his number, whatever else. So he'll go and technically be there for the first game, and then he'll retire there, one-day contract, go out strong, go out on the field, whatever. But I hope he doesn't do that. I hope that Tom Brady... Gives him, like I said, the double-barreled middle finger and plays another season. Proves them all wrong, even if he planned on retiring. I hope he does it. His body can take it. He has defied time, defied Father Time. He has uh, exceeded all expectations. It's really a miracle what he's done. So, you know, that's my commentary about that. That's the pitiful state of media today in this country. That's where we are. Fake news everywhere. It's not just politics. It's also football with Tom Brady. Disrespect, serving the narrative over the truth or facts, all that be damned, left aside. We want to tell the story of Tom Brady's retirement, so we're going to do it even if we didn't corroborate it with anyone who would actually know and can confirm it. That's what the media does, day in and day out, do they not? But anyway, I wanted to get into also piggybacking off of that (laughs) <laughs> this uh, is Ukraine's invasion imminent or not? Is Tom Brady's retirement imminent or not? Same boat, same scenario. One with graver consequences, of course. So, all right, look, we've had, we've talked about this last episode, but the White House has been claiming that Ukraine is downplaying the invasion. Zelensky is claiming that Biden is, is overreacting, and Biden is. He is screaming fire in a movie theater. That's what's happening. And something interesting has taken place. You know, Zelensky commented on how this is destroying Ukraine's economy. All of the fear. It's kind of like the COVID pandemic. All the hysteria. Biden's doing that to Ukraine. And Ukraine is suffering as a result of it. And Zelensky had some important things to say. Uh, Well, one, I wanted to tell you this. The currency actually in Ukraine, it's fallen 8% against the dollar since... November, so just a couple of months ago. So it's destabilizing the economy, you think? And this leads to, I mean, to me, this gives additional credibility to my premise, my uh, theory, of course, that the Biden regime wants to harm Ukraine. They want to help Russia. Because think about this, a shot doesn't have to be fired right now from Russia. They don't have to invade. The troop presence alone And Biden and the White House and America's response, you know, using the the uh, the magnification of our status in the world being the United States of America, the megaphone that we have, that in itself is hurting Ukraine already, destabilizing the economy. And there's not even been an invasion yet. 
And Zelensky's got a point. So Zelensky's not happy with this, right? You know, and he, he, he gave a press conference that went on for a while uh, after this conversation with Joe Biden, where there was conflicting information about what took place on the phone call. And of course, we've been demanding a transcript of that phone call, and we can't get one. They're trying to bury it in the news, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Zelensky's not happy. And you know what he said, which is so true. I love this about Zelensky fighting back here. He says, I'm the president of Ukraine. I'm based here. And I think I know the details deeper than any other president. Of course. Of course. Unless Biden's not telling Zelensky something. But of course, the president of Ukraine knows what's happening in Ukraine better than Joe Biden. So he said, Zelensky went on and said, do we have tanks on the streets? No. When you read media, you get the image that we have troops in the city, people fleeing. That's not the case. But this is reminiscent of everything. This, this way the media works to, to paint this artificial reality, something that's not real, just like COVID. Just like 2.2 million Americans are going to die if you don't lock down and hide in your homes and destroy your businesses and not go to work and go out of work and lose your jobs, lose your restaurants. Everyone's going to die. It's going to be carnage on the streets. The streets going to be lined with dead bodies because of COVID. And none of that was true. You know, they find a hospital that's overrun. and They say, oh, look, look, look at all these, look at all these hospitalizations. And yet the same thing happens during flu season. You can go back and look at the articles. But the media creates this narrative that defies what we even witness with our own eyes and experience. So that's what's happening here in Ukraine. So... Ukraine is trying to push a message of calm, which makes sense, right? They're trying to look out for their, their people. They're trying to shore up uh, uh, their economy, keep things moving along. And that's just reality. That's what a responsible president of a country would do. Things have to go on. But Biden, like I said, is yelling fire in a movie theater. And, and I got to say... Um, what a lot of Americans fail to understand is that Ukraine has essentially been at war with Russia in some capacity, I'll explain in a moment, for the past eight years or so. 14,000 people have been killed over the past eight years or so in the Donbass region there in southeastern Ukraine. It's the southeastern portion of Ukraine. And you've got, look, there are certain people in Ukraine, especially near the Russian border, who are pro-Russian. Now, the majority of people in Ukraine are pro-Ukrainian, pro-democracy, pro-independence. But you've got a group of separatists who, who are pro-Russian uh, in this Donbass region that are being backed by Russia, armed by Russia, supported by Russia. And so this has been going on for eight years, 14,000 dead. So the, tr the, the point is, Ukraine has lived under the constant threat of a Russian attack. They live with this every day. It's kind of like Israel, who lives with the threats from Palestine. It's part of their daily life. Russia is an adjacent neighbor. They took Crimea in 2014. There's been a war zone in the Donbass region for the past, since 2014. 14,000 are dead. This is not news to Ukraine. They're monitoring this situation very carefully, as they have been. And they're saying, uh, Biden, stop doing this. But Biden isn't listening. And more importantly, Zelensky is asked, as we talked about, hey, why, Biden, are you waiting to, to sanction Russia until after they invade us? If you want to help us, sanction them now. And, and that gets me to something else, too, because... You know, the Republicans actually, um, they tried to push a bill through that would have sanctioned the Nord Stream 2, but they couldn't get the votes to pass it. The Democrats didn't want to support it. So what does that tell you? Biden is not doing anything to assist Ukraine. Sending them arms and whatnot, that doesn't really accomplish anything. As I, as I pointed out before, Russia has a very, very strong military much bigger, much more threatening than Ukraine. So Ukraine can't actually defend itself. They need America. And so we're at this juncture 
where, again, we've got conflicting information and the Biden regime is doubling down on their rhetoric that an invasion is imminent, despite the fact that Zelensky is saying, will you please tone it down? What kind of ally doesn't listen to that? What kind of ally ignores uh, the president of Ukraine, who's supposed to be a friend, and goes against his wishes? So that's where we are. And so anyway, so we've got this fever pitch, right? That Well, well it started and it stopped pretty quickly. Uh, for the Biden White House to release the transcript of this conversation between Zelensky and, and, and Biden. They had a private phone conversation, and that's where all this drama came from. Zelensky contradicting what Biden is saying. And so what happens? Biden got a new pet cat. That's right. I kid you not. I kid you not. Just as... Uh, as people were screaming for the transcripts of this phone conversation, which, of course, the Democrats had no problem screaming and demanding all transcripts from phone conversations with Trump, especially when it came down to Ukraine and that phone call. Remember the fake quid pro quo? Well, now diversion, complete diversion. You know, if, uh, if, if, if Biden adopts a new pet every time he needs to divert attention from a crisis he's created or a snafu, or an embarrassing failure, the White House is going to look like a zoo. I mean, we're going to have to call this guy Joe Doolittle. Like Dr. Doolittle. But, I mean, there is some credibility to Joe Doolittle. I mean, Joe Doolittle would be a little generous, don't you think? It's more like Joe Do-Nothing Biden. But anyway, so, so you know, I, I couldn't believe my eyes and ears, by the way. So Lester Holt, who once upon a time, was actually, I think, a journalist. So he devoted time on NBC Nightly News to a story about this adopted cat. I mean, just a month ago, the Bidens bought a new German shepherd puppy called Commander after their dog Champ died. Remember those, those pathetic uh, North Korean-esque Vladimir Putin-esque, where he's got his shirt off, wrangling some alligator, whatever they do. Total propaganda shot of them on the beach, probably in Delaware, I guess it was. You know, with their new dog, their new puppy commander, amidst the uh, tanking approval ratings. But think about this. You know, their other dog, by the way, Major, that's the one they adopted, I don't know, however many years ago, but it kept biting the Secret Service and White House staff. And so they had to discard it. So it's got some new home. They got rid of Major because it couldn't adapt to the busy White House environment is how they kept describing it. But these guys just, I mean, they, they, sociopaths. All these people are sociopaths. You know who else is a sociopath? Um, Justin Trudeau. You know, there's a new nickname for Justin, by the way. And that's uh, Cut and Run Justin. Cut and Run Justin. And that's, of course, a, uh, a response to cut-and-run Justin fleeing Ottawa, the capital there in Canada, in light of all of these truck drivers, the Freedom Convoy, showing up to protest the tyranny they're experiencing in Canada. But I'm going to get to that story in a minute. I want to say something else, else about Joe Biden here, because I'm really getting tired of this lie. So Joe Biden's been doing this for a while, touting you know, unprecedented economic growth under his leadership. And it's such a joke. So you'll see pictures of him that he's posting out there with, you know, they always bring out these, uh, these diagrams, right? These graphs. And in the latest graph he's standing in front of, he's touting the fastest economic growth since 1984. Record number of jobs created. Record drop in the unemployment rate. You know, this is such a lie. I saw something interesting uh, that was tweeted not by me, but by somebody else who I admire and respect. Daniel Horowitz, who writes over at The Blaze. Well, he said it's like taking somebody out of a concentration camp at 80 pounds and giving them meals, and as they you know, regain their weight in some record fashion, trying to say, look, you know, 
you know, look look how fast this person's gained weight. Look what I've done for this person. I mean, you, you, it, 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 it's, it's such a lie. It's such a lie. I mean, we are still, by the way, not back to where we were before March of 2020. And, you know, if you force 100 million people out of work because you're telling them they cannot go to work, you're shutting down their businesses, you're destroying their jobs and livelihoods, if you suddenly say, okay, you can go back to work now, and 60 million people go back to work, that is not job creation. That's not the fastest economic growth. If you turn off the pipe, and the pool goes empty, and then you turn it back on, and you fill it up, that's not creating economic growth. I'm so tired of this lie. He hasn't created anything. And I want to get into some figures here that I think are important as well, because everyone has tried to destroy and lie about Trump's success, trying to paint him as a failure, because what happened in his last year? Well, the economy was forced closed. And so, of course, GDP was decimated in that year. So let's just look at the figures before 2020. Eight years of Obama. Do you know what the average GDP growth was? It was 1.62%. That's in eight, eight years under Obama. That's anemic. That's an embarrassment. That's a joke in the United States of America. Do you know what Trump's average GDP growth was prior to the economic suicide? 2.5%. Nearly a full percentage higher. I mean, 2017 GDP went from 1.5% in 2016 to 2.3% 2 in 2017. That's the first year under Donald Trump. 2018, we had 3% GDP growth. In 2019, we had 2.3%. And so I'm so tired of this lie. Do not take the bait. Do not listen to this. Joe Biden's not created anything. We're not even where we were before the shutdowns. So this guy is a propagandist and a liar. Now, Canadian truckers. Man, these guys are heroes. I find it a little bit embarrassing that Canada, Canada is fighting harder for their freedom in some ways in this great show of force than America. Now, Americans are now following the lead of Canada, by the way. Now, you have these truckers, right? And apparently, it's basically a Guinness World Record uh, line of trucks going for 45 miles long. Maybe it's grown since then, but they've all been headed to Ottawa. They're all there to protest tyranny under Trudeau. And Trudeau, of course, is nowhere to be found. He's fled the capital. There's a report, by the way, that Justin Trudeau has actually fled to the United States of America. If that is true, that's just the, the cherry on top, right? But nonetheless, Trudeau has fled. Now, the reason he's claimed he's fled the capital is because he's in fear for his life. Fear for his life. Now, the only intention of doing that, one, he's a coward and he won't face these people because he's decimated lives talked down to these people, vilified them, and now they're there to look him in the eye and he can't stand on his two feet. So he's fled. But there's a secondary reason he's fled, and that's to give the media a narrative that these are violent protesters, a far-right extremist group of truckers in Canada. Truckers who he hailed as heroes, by the way, not too long ago. They were keeping the economy going, right? And so what this initially started as is there were quarantine requirements and vaccine mandates for these Canadian truckers who were going from where? Canada's border to the U.S. and back. And the reality is most of these truckers are actually vaccinated. So this actually, these Canadian truckers are heroes, truly fighting for freedom and against tyranny because Many of them are vaccinated who are participating in this. Now, nonetheless, these vaccine mandates <clears throat> are going to destroy the trucking industry because you're still going to lose 30,000, 40,000 truckers in this. But nonetheless, everyone's making a stand. And 
Lester Holt, of course, didn't talk about this on his NBC Nightly News broadcast. No, no, no. He's too busy talking about kitty cats adopted by the White House. Oh, you know, you know what I think NPR, somebody said about this cat, by the way? They said it was a very presidential-looking cat. Very president. What a softball joke this media is. Joe Biden adopts a very presidential-looking cat. Well, anything's presidential-looking in comparison to Joe Biden, who stares vacantly at a, uh, at a screen and still can't speak in complete sentences, still can't make any sense, who's still falling asleep in meetings. So yeah, I would say that the cat they adopted probably is definitely more presidential-looking than Joe Biden. There's nothing presidential about that guy. But the reason I bring up the Canadian truck driving, uh, the Freedom Convoy, they're calling it, is because of how the media is responding to it and reacting to it. So this goes back to everything we've talked about with the narrative about the ability of the media to create a situation, uh, an environment that is not real. So here's a Washington Post headline from this op-ed writer who's an absolute reprobate. His name is David Mosscrop. I've never heard of the guy. He's an absolute zero, a loser. He's a tyrant, and he's a totalitarian, an authoritarian, and he's got an IQ of probably 12. Now, here's the headline as he writes it. Canada must confront the toxic, toxic freedom convoy head on. Do you see what they're already trying to do here? They're trying to minimize the stand that's being made against tyranny. They're calling it toxic. Of course it's toxic to tyrants. Freedom is toxic to tyrants, just like freedom was toxic to King George III. It's toxic. The Constitution, as it relates to America at least, and our standing up for freedom, well, that's toxic to them too. So I want to read some pull quotes from this headline. Long lines of truckers calling themselves the Freedom Convoy are headed across Canada to Ottawa from the west and from the east. Estimates of the size of the convoy vary. I won't estimate. Bigger than a breadbasket, smaller than Hadrian's Wall. Hundreds of trucks and personal vehicles by some estimates. Now he's lying already to minimize the size of this movement because the objective is always, as it has always been, is to convince Americans that you're in a minority to keep you silent and quiet and to prevent you from standing up for freedom. Because if people in this world, in Canada, in the United States, throughout the world, actually understood that there were more of us than them, we would be encouraged to make a stand, encouraged to speak up. Now, this goes back, by the way, to even the silent conservatism, right? Silent conservatives. We often don't speak up because the media has convinced for decades, Americans in particular, that we are not a majority. They threaten us, they ridicule us, and they keep us quiet. Because the narrative is that this country, oh yes, 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 a majority of Americans are in favor of American suicide, in favor of demolishing the Constitution, in favor of socialism, which now is transformed into pure red communism. And so... By painting this picture and convincing Americans that we're a minority, that we're a smaller group than we are, well, we're hesitant to stand up because nobody wants to stand up and be beaten down by a majority. You know, it's like if, if you were supposed to go into a boxing ring and you'd never seen your opponent before and the media and everyone convinces you, despite the fact that you're in great shape, you understand the mechanics of boxing. Maybe you've been boxing for 10 years. You're well-trained, adept. You're a true fighter. And you've got confidence. But then you start hearing in the locker room, hey, <clears throat> the opponent out there, he's in a different weight class than you. He's a big sum of, big sum of bitch. Imagine you hear that, and you hear that over and over and over again, and you start to lose confidence. But you've never seen the opponent. But what you're hearing is, this guy's going to beat you into a bloody pulp because he's better trained than you, he's stronger than you, he's bigger than you. And so you start to get fearful. You might, not, you might think twice about getting into that match with the, with the opponent. But if you actually walked out into the ring and you looked your opponent in the eye, you'd realize the guy's 4'11". 
and you're six foot two. And all of it's a bunch of baloney intended to keep you from going in the ring and knocking that guy out. That's what's happening here, and that's the strategy. It's not hundreds of trucks and personal vehicles. It's a 45-mile-long caravan, the longest in the world. So here we go. The leadership of the group is promising to remain peaceful, but the convoy is made up of many individuals and far-right groups that have embraced the convoy as a Canadian version of the January 6th rioting in the United States. So this guy is trying to paint these freedom-loving, peace-loving Canadians who just want their freedom back, who are in the right, as some kind of insurrectionists. This is the playbook. The movement shares an affinity with Trumpist, toxic, authoritarianist politics. Now, what a bunch of garbage. Trumpist, toxic, authoritarianist politics. This guy was probably pulling a Jeff Tubin as he, as he, as he, as he typed one-handed uh, this, this sentence on the keyboard thinking he was full of brilliance. What Trump, Trumpist, toxic, authoritarianist politics. That's a good one. That's a good one, David Moskrop. Yes, indeed. So he goes on. Um, the convoy is, by and large, a fringe group. Now, you're going to hear this everywhere. Everyone's repeating this. Justin Trudeau has repeated this. It's a fringe group. Now, the reality is these far leftist totalitarians like Justin Trudeau and those like David Moskrop, who's writing this crappy op-ed full of lies, they're actually a fringe group. The radical leftist extremists are a small fringe group, but they're using the media, they're using their keyboards, they're using their megaphones to paint a picture that's not true, that we're a small fringe group and they are a majority. That's the intention of this, a fringe group. They're not a fringe group, they're a majority of Canadians, I guarantee it. So the convoy is, by and large, a fringe group, an unfortunate minority, in which a further minority of insidious extremists lurk. Now, there are operations going on in Canada. Now, you can look at pictures. I've come across them. You see these peaceful protesters standing there in Ottawa, and you see people with masks brandishing brand new, no creases, just taken out of the box, Confederate flags. Now, why would a Canadian be holding a Confederate flag to begin with? No one else in the world is brandishing Confederate flags. That's not their history. They have no connection with that whatsoever. But that's the, the flag that the media has, has made into something to represent, you know, racists, white supremacists. And so, of course, at this Canada rally, they are planting individuals with these flags to try and take photos to put in the media that, look, a bunch of Confederate white supremacists are in this group. And so that's to give credibility, which there is none, but credibility to their claims that insidious extremists are in their ranks, that this is a dangerous, dangerous, violent movement. So he goes on. Uh, They are bolstered by support from conservative politicians. They are driven by a generalized rage, misplaced anger about supply chain challenges. These guys are responsible for the supply chain, you moron. Anyway, an anti-government sentiment. Now, They want to make anti-government sentiment also seem like some kind of tragedy, some kind of fatal flaw. But America is an anti-government country. Now, I understand this is happening in Canada, but I'm trying to make a broader point here because they're doing this to Americans too. Anti-government sentiment. Now, anti-government sentiment is what this nation was built on, what freedom and democracy and our republic were built upon. Anti-government sentiment. It wasn't pro-government sentiment that led us to engage in a revolutionary war for our freedom against King George III. It was anti-government, mistrust of government. That's why we have three branches of government. That's why we have a constitution. That's why we, the people, have unalienable rights. That's why the constitution limits the powers of the government, not we, the people. So anyway, he's encouraging that the convoy and its supporters must be met with a counter-movement that refuses to give them an inch, but instead focuses national, subnational, and local efforts on true threats to liberty, which do exist. Now, they're the ones who represent anti-liberty. We are protesting in favor of liberty, but here they go trying to switch the narrative, play word games, 
and continue their, uh, their schemes here. So these types of groups are typically driven by attitudes, grievances, and priorities of such a nature that they pose a particular risk to racialized folks and other groups that are traditionally the target of hate and violence. There you go. White supremacists, right? There they are protesting, vac- pro- protesting vaccine mandates, protesting against this tyrannical Trudeau and this Canadian government, but they're trying to link them to something that they don't represent at all. That they're, they're targeting racialized folks. Hate and violence. And so anyway, he wants Canada's response to the convoy to be strict, a strict line of resistance that doubles down on. So he basically, he wants, you know, their own January 6th committee here for the truck, the convoy. And he goes on, the convoy speaks of threats to liberty. Threats to liberty are rampant in Canada. Yes, they are rampant in Canada, and they're coming from the government, coming from people like you, David Moss crap. So anyway, I just wanted to bring this up. He goes on and finishes the Freedom Convoy is a regrettable movement that offers a reminder that open societies will produce protest movements. However, when those movements are toxic, they must be denounced and resisted. Wow. How about that? But anyway, these protesters, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And the reality of this, the reason you have these extremist articles being written denouncing this is because they fear us. They fear us. And they know, they know that this threatens their job security as tyrants. And they understand that they're facing a movement that they cannot defeat. That it threatens their control, their power. And they can't have that. So this is what's going on. Now, this is going to get me, you know, I'm going to take a short break. And when I come back, I want to talk about the Biden uh, Supreme Court nominee. Because this is going to get your, uh, well, it'll probably get your blood boiling. gets mine too. But there's some interesting uh, things to talk about here. Uh, For example, you know, the regime here, the Biden regime, is promoting affirmative action, right? He said he's only nominating a black woman of color. That's who he's putting on the Supreme Court. And you know the left is desperate when they start to try and use Ronald Reagan, who they hate, have always hated and despised, when they try to use Ronald Reagan to defend what they're doing. More on that in just a minute. This is Drew Allen. I'll be right back. So contrary to what you may have heard or think based on the media's response to this absolutely un-American proposal, affirmative action proposal, in which they're saying it's an exclusionary rule, in which they're excluding everyone except a black woman from being considered to replace Justice Breyer. Now, a majority of Americans, believe it or not, want Biden to consider all possible nominees, not just black women. 76% of Americans feel that way. Now, 54% of Democrats, a majority of them also, also want Biden to consider all possible nominees. So they know this is unpopular. They see these polls. Uh, This was an ABC poll, I believe, that this came from. So that's a left-leaning news outlet. And so you know it's bad if it's coming from ABC News. And so the Democrats are trying to salvage themselves and make arguments in their defense. Well, look, Ronald Reagan did it. He said he intended to put a woman on the Supreme Court. Okay, a couple things here you just need to know because you're going to hear this a lot. I want to tell you how to break this down and defeat this lie. Ronald Reagan did say that he wanted to put a female justice on the Supreme Court. But he did not say he would only consider female nominees. He said if he could find a woman that was the most qualified, he would put that woman on the Supreme Court. It was not exclusionary. He didn't say he would only consider a female candidate or female candidates to choose from. And in fact, when he was looking to to put a Supreme Court justice on the court, he had a list of all types of people. 
not just women. Now, he ended up going with Sandra Day O'Connor. So he did ultimately put a female on the Supreme Court. So that's a lie. He was not exclusionary like Biden is being. It wasn't an act of affirmative action. Now, yes, there's politics involved in this. That's fair. That's reality. But Joe Biden isn't saying, look, I would like to put a black female justice on the Supreme Court, but I'm going to consider everyone. And if there happens to be a black female who is the most qualified, bar none, then I'll put her on the court. But I'm looking at all my options right now. I'm not looking at just black females. He's not doing that. He's exclusionary. Only black females need apply. That's racist. It's reprehensible. And honestly, this gender, ethnicity, race, all of it, it has, there's zero reason to have this as part of the discussion today. The Constitution, the interpretation of the laws of this land, do not change based on the color of your skin or the genitalia between your legs. The Constitution applies equally to all people. It's there to be interpreted the same way for everyone. And so this is absolutely outrageous, and it is racist. So they're trying to defend this affirmative action that is unpopular. And so they're bringing up Ronald Reagan, and they're lying through their teeth. And they know they're lying through their teeth. So Reagan expressed preference, okay? Not exclusion. That's the difference. Now, what this goes back to, by the way, this is a deal that Joe Biden made with uh, James Clyburn. Uh, out of South Carolina there, the congressman out of South Carolina. Now, James Clyburn, here's what happened, all right? When the primaries were taking place and the Democrats were looking to select their presidential nominee, which ended up being Joe Biden, of course, you know, you got to go through the primary system. And so South Carolina was an important primary. And Joe Biden needed to win. South Carolina. And so James Clyburn had a lot of pull in the Democratic Party in his home state of South Carolina, and he said he would endorse Joe Biden and get him those votes if Joe Biden pledged to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. So that's the history behind this. And I don't have a lot of hope here for the Republicans. Um, Lindsey Graham... Lindsey Graham is not a friend of ours. He's not a conservative at all. He is a swamp rat, okay? Now, he's said that he's defending, taking the Democrat side. He's saying that nominating a black woman is not a case of affirmative action. Of course it is. Of course it is. Now, I want to bring back Reagan, up Reagan again, too. You know, it's different to say that maybe you want to put a woman on the Supreme Court. Businesses do it. Now, there should not be these quotas. That's wrong. But it's okay to look at your team and say, you know, I think this team would benefit from having females on it. That's one thing. But to go and make it about race as well takes it into another league. And also, where we are as a society today is not where we were before. That's why affirmative action period should be over. This is not pre-1964. Uh, blacks do not are not... Uh, Their rights are not being deprived from them. This isn't the Civil War era. It's a joke. And so this is race baiting. It's sick. It is uh, opening up a scab, ripping it off, creating a race issue where this country has already healed. But Lindsey Graham here, he favors this, right? And he's already ready to support a, a potential nominee named Michelle Childs. Now, I don't know. There are three people that are being promoted as, as, as contenders here, top candidates. And I'm just going to talk about this one. Michelle Childs, Judge Michelle Childs. Now, the reason I think that she has a good chance of being the nominee is because she is a U.S. district judge in South Carolina. And James Clyburn is backing her. Lindsey Graham is from South Carolina. And he's admitted he's willing to back her. Tim Scott is another Republican senator out of South Carolina. He's African-American. 
he will likely support her as well. So if those two are willing to vote for this person, the Democrats can claim it was a bipartisan nomination, a bipartisan Supreme Court justice, this process. And that's what they're always looking for. Look, it was bipartisan. Like infrastructure, you had those 13 cowards that voted for the infrastructure bill. And I'm going to tell you a story about that to end in a minute. We've just got a few minutes left about this bridge collapse in Pittsburgh that left some people injured. Thank God nobody died. But anyway, who is Michelle Childs? Let me tell you what she said when she was nominated before for uh, these, these lower courts beneath the Supreme Court. Senator Dianne Feinstein asked her um, about her understanding of congressional authority as given by the Constitution. Michelle Child said, and I quote, With respect to any laws respecting your congressional powers, I would presume that anything that you all are doing is constitutional and would approach it with that mindset, knowing that you would only enact laws that you have had due deliverance over and consider deliberation over. So she's already made up her mind. Well, you know, I'm just going to take your word for it. I'm going to trust Congress. You guys aren't corrupt at all. You would never do anything that was unconstitutional. So, you know, that would bear, uh, um, you know, that would be top of mind if I was considering anything. You know, you guys are doing the right thing, so I'll just take your word for it. So this is already a gross problem in this statement. She's not interested in doing her job as a judge. She is just presuming. You do not presume. You look at every case before you with clear eyes from a constitutional perspective. You don't say, well, you know, Congress wouldn't do this. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely outrageous. So um, this is from a September 21st, 2020. This is, of course, the 2020 election that saw Joe Biden somehow become president of the United States with 81 million votes. Well, a federal judge in South Carolina has struck down a rule requiring mail-in absentee ballots to be signed by witnesses for the upcoming November election, citing the severity of the coronavirus pandemic. Who was the federal judge that struck down and removed these protections against voter fraud? None other than You got it. Ding, ding, ding. Judge Michelle Childs. That's right. In a ruling Friday, U.S. District Court Judge Michelle Childs ordered the State Election Commission to immediately inform voters about the removal of the requirement. Childs said South Carolina voters would risk exposing themselves to COVID-19 if they voted in person and that they could also expose the witnesses required to sign their ballots. Now, what happened? The, um, the Supreme Court struck this down. It was unconstitutional. She violated the Constitution in this ruling. The Supreme Court didn't get to it right before, so there are many ballots cast without these witnesses uh, you know, testifying that the person who filled out the absentee ballot was, in fact, the person that did it. So she removed these signature verification processes. All these ballots got submitted, had to be counted, before the Supreme Court could issue their ruling saying, uh, Michelle Childs, you violated the law. So Michelle Childs is already an unconstitutional individual with a record that we should fear. Now, the Democrats, of course, are going to say, oh, you, if you, you know, we have to put a black female on the bench. You know, when the Democrats do it right, Barack Obama, we put him on there. You have to vote for him or you're a racist. Michelle Childs, if you don't vote for her, you're a racist. You know, your Jim Crow era. Well, Biden himself filibustered the nomination of Janice Rogers Brown twice for the U.S. Court of Appeals for uh, the D.C. Circuit. Barack Obama also opposed. Now, this was under George Bush, and Janice Rogers Brown was an African-American, and she was what? A Republican. Ooh, the Democrats opposed that. They didn't see a problem. And you know what they did? They smeared her, by the way, if you go back. The, the mantra then, the playbook, the talking points was Janice Rogers Brown is unqualified. This black female they were appointing for the D.C. Circuit, they called unqualified. Now, can you imagine if we call Michelle Childs unqualified, what they will say about us? 
You know, this is hilarious about Democrats and Democrat voters, by the way. You know, the white guilt vote for Barack Obama, thinking that we'll overcome racism, we'll get passed in this country, the Democrats will let that lie and die, and we can move on. It didn't happen. We had a black president, and it's still not enough. You have Clarence Thomas, a black man on the Supreme Court, nominated, of course, by the Republicans, and what did the Democrats do? They brought Anita Hill forward with uncorroborated lies to smear his reputation and destroy him to prevent him from going to the Supreme Court, and he was a black man. But when the Democrats do it, oh my gosh. So, you know, we don't need any more firsts like this. We have the, it's always the first, the first African-American vice president, Kamala Harris. And they're always what? Unqualified when they come from the Democrat side, in over their heads. Psychopaths. And you know what? With regards to you, you reprobate Lindsey Graham, you know, the Democrats under the Trump years, do you know how many Democrats voted for Kavanaugh, who they also brought forward, that lousy woman, to lie and try and smear Kavanaugh just like they did with Clarence Thomas? That's their tactic and playbook. And by the way, I'd like to say right now, I don't know when it happened. I can't remember. My memory's foggy. But there was this time, I was at a party at some place, somewhere, sometime. Don't ask me for the details, but Michelle Childs raped me. And I'd like to come forward and testify on Capitol Hill during this nomination process because I, I want to tell you, I can't remember it, but I'm just confident because I just know it and I feel it and I have these horror PTSD from it. Michelle Childs raped me. No, nah, don't ask me any questions. That's my word. You're racist if you, if you say anything against me. You hate white people. I'm telling you, I, I, I remember, but I can't remember Michelle Childs raping me. So she can't go on the, the, the court. Anyway, so only Manchin, one Democratic Party senator, voted for Kavanaugh. All right. Do you know how many voted for Justice Amy Coney Barrett? Zero. It was party line vote. Party line vote. There was no bipartisan movement to elect her that all the Democrats opposed her. And the truth is, Democrats can put their Supreme Court justice pick on the court, the Supreme Court, without a single Republican vote. That's the truth, because there's a 2013 agreement that allows... Let me make this plain and simple. So we have a 2013 agreement that allows most presidential nominees to be confirmed with a simple majority vote, rather than the 60 vote filibuster-proof majority. And then in 2017, we updated it. Well, the Congress, they updated it. The Senate updated it to include Supreme Court nominees. And now Mitch McConnell, in May of 2021, made a deal with Chuck Schumer. They reached this power-sharing sharing agreement, they call it, uh, to extend that to today. So they don't need... So it's filibuster-proof. So if 50 senators vote for Michelle Childs or another black female nominee... Well, Kamala Harris can come in and be the tie-breaking vote, and they've got what they want. So, you know, for, for any of these Republicans to go along with this and vote for it, it's, uh, it's reprehensible. Reprehensible, because they can do it without them anyway, but they want to vote for it because they want to go on CNN and get their two minutes of fame and praise from the Democrats, only to be hated the very next day for something else. We always give these Democrats victories, and I'm sick of it. But anyway, I don't. Ex I expect their nominee to get put on the court. All right, and it's not. It's not good. Uh, it's going to be a problem. And if 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 Republicans had had spines, they'd stand firm, and they would uh, they would tell the truth, like I'm doing right now about this process and all the lies from the Democrats. Now, anyway, speaking of that infrastructure bill that the Republicans helped passed, uh, about a tenth of it. Uh, I believe, actually went towards roads and bridges. And you know what? Here's the thing. You know that bridge in Pittsburgh? Did you hear about it? It collapsed. It was called the Ford Forbes Avenue Bridge. And somehow, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm just telling you what happened. It's very odd. It collapsed just hours before Joe Biden arrived to discuss infrastructure. Now, this, this is a testimony to the failure of government. The absolute failure of government to fulfill 
their duties, how they squander our money and how they lie to us to get it and steal our tax dollars. It never goes towards what they actually claim it's supposed to do. It's all a scam. Now, this bridge had a poor rating since 2011, which means it's in need of attention. And in 2017, inspectors actually recommended that this bridge be overhauled, I quote from the inspectors, because of general structure deterioration and inadequate strength. And they recommended, by the way, a restoration project that would cost $1.5 million. $1.5 million. That's how much Joe Biden makes an hour from the communist Chinese. But they never funded the project. They couldn't find the $1.5 million in their budget. Can you imagine that? Do you know what the budget in Pittsburgh is, in the city of Pittsburgh? It's $613 million. That's their annual budget. And they couldn't find $1.5 million to restore this bridge and prevent it from collapsing now. Now, of that $613 million, this is your government for you at work, your Democrats especially, $500 million of the $613 million budget, $500 million goes towards personnel and benefits. Personnel and benefits, that would be the salaries of government employees and their ridiculous benefits paid by you and me, the taxpayer. Now, Pittsburgh only budgets about $82 million a year for engineering and construction for all the city's roadway, transit, flood control, streetlight fencing, and bridge projects. So there you go, stealing from us, lining their pockets with our money, and neglecting their one and only responsibility, which would be infrastructure. So now you have the Democrats, of course, asking, using this tragedy to demand that we give them more money, that the Republicans vote for their additional infrastructure bill, that'd be the Build Back Better plan, to further expand the welfare state and call it infrastructure. Because just like the budget in Pittsburgh, none of it goes towards what they claim it's going to. Green new energy. While they let our Bridges and roads collapse around us. That's the thing. Money is never a solution to these politicians. The fix is not more money. It's for them to act responsibly. Them to look in the mirror in their nice fancy homes and their nice fancy cars and realize that they're scumbags. That they're not acting in the interest of of the citizenry, that they're serving themselves and not us. So I don't want to give them another dime. And this bridge collapse, if the Republicans actually are have brains intact, will tell the American people exactly what I'm explaining now. That more money's not the solution. It's for the government to cut back on these ridiculous expenses and do their jobs once and for all. Because no matter how much money we give them, it doesn't go towards the things that they claim they're going to fix and repair. Just like this, they couldn't find $1.5 million out of $613 million or even the $85 million they had budgeted or appropriated for this type of thing. They couldn't find $1.5 million to do it. Instead, they spent $500 million on themselves. Let that sink in. All right. This is Drew Allen. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And until next time.